This is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. Meet Me in the Bathroom is an immersive journey through the New York music scene of the early 2000s, when bands like The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, and LCD Sound System, just to name a few, kick-started a musical rebirth for New York City. Join us as we talk with directors Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern as we step back 20 years to a time before social media when bands performed simply for the love of music. Sounds like a dream, doesn't it? Stay tuned. Will and Dylan, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) Illustrating what we were talking about before we started this. Um, uh, (laughs) I I didn't even follow my own advice. Uh, We'll start with you, Dylan. How are you? Really good, thanks. Um, Yeah, no, really glad to to be on with you. Okay, and Will? Yeah, also good. Uh, Thanks for having us. Are Are you all based in the UK? Yes, both based in London. Okay, um, so it's it's still it's because we're now in the summertime. It's uh, it's still light outside, but if this goes on for a while, it will be uh, yeah getting dark. Yeah, Dylan might have to change uh, change locations or 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 do something. But welcome uh, coming to us, Alfresco. There. Well, anyway, uh, welcome to Factual America. It's great to finally get you guys on. Uh, just to remind our listeners and viewers, we're talking about Meet Me in the Bathroom. It came out last year, but it's uh, now on uh, Apple TV and Amazon Prime. And do let me know if there are other places where people can can see it. I think it's already had a theatrical release, so I don't know if it's still in uh, cinemas or theaters anywhere. But uh, welcome again. Uh, Really great to have you on. Um, Maybe we just start out uh, for our listeners who... um, haven't had a chance to see this this film. Uh, Will, maybe uh, start us off. Maybe you can tell us what Meet Me in the Bathroom is all about. Uh, maybe a brief synopsis. Yeah, um, it's a, a music film, a music documentary, which is sort of loosely inspired by uh, Lizzie Goodman's book of the same title, which came out, I think, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, an immersive uh, view into or immersive journey into the new york music scene around the kind of turn of the millennium so the few years from 1999 onwards um when you know there seemed to be uh, a kind of musical explosion in new york different lots of different bands kind of coming through at that point so that yeah that's Mm -hmm. the uh that's the film okay uh and dylan maybe set the scene for us because um i mean i actually used to go to went to New York quite a bit in the late 90s and even was in Alphabet City, although my friends obviously weren't taking me to the right clubs because I don't remember seeing any of these uh, any of these bands. But uh, what was New York like leading up to this sort of musical explosion that uh, you guys document for us? I mean, what was the music scene like in New York before, uh, before you know, these guys, some of these bands hit? Yeah, I mean, you know, the... Speaking to them all, um, specifically, you know, these are guitar bands and they, they come from a kind of a certain lineage. And I think for people that kind of uh, were into that kind of music, New York seemed pretty dead in the late 90s. Um, you know, I think culturally guitar music was in a bit of a nadir and there's a lot of like 
pop punk kind of stuff happening in the you know that was popular in the general community i mean new york's always vibrant for music you know right. there's right. not stuff going on with guitars there's stuff going on in hip-hop or jazz or, or whatever so i'm sure there was like some amazing scenes happening at that point but the general feeling for the people in the bands that we cover who at that point were arriving in new york you know with expectations that they'd sort of built up you know looking back to the stooges and cbgbs and all that kind right. of stuff i think when they got to new york they were like oh you know it isn't quite what it was and i think that vacuum is one of the things that led to the creation of of this scene at that point yeah and and will i mean yeah so this sort of i mean as you as you say dylan i mean um let's face it i mean new york's a very vibrant city it always will has been and will be but uh um it does seem to kind of seemingly come out of nowhere and what what was this i mean I mean, what was it that uh, brought all these bands to New York? And what was the genesis? And it's not just, I mean, you, you highlight, obviously, the Strokes play uh, big in this, but uh, it's certainly not limited to them. What, was, what, were they, uh, what were they tapping into, do you think? Well, I think, you know, I think Dylan sort of touched upon it there. You know, New York's a city that has that amazing musical history. And so for those bands who, or those people who came to the city you know I, i'm sure there was some you know it was that kind of history that they were thinking about when they arrived there um but it still had the the city itself at that point and this is one of the things that interested us about this period the city it, itself was sort of about to change you know it was still right, cheap, right. cheap enough to live in the lower east side right which it wouldn't be a few years later so you you had this this you know this sort of situation where lots of the bands could move into the the center of of new york really and you know and grow up grow up and and, and you know find out who, the sort of music they wanted to make and and one of the things that sort of we really liked about lizzie's book when we when we read it was that it mm. it sort of felt like a, a series of coming of age stories really they all right all of these characters in their own ways either came to the city or you know grew up in the city and it was it was that moment that was most interesting to us that it felt like all of these bands actually not they weren't as uh, kind of they weren't living in each other's pockets but they were all in a similar similar parts mm -hmm. of town and and were were growing up and, and making music yeah i mean i think you make you you raise a good point i think even in the film one of the uh one of the one of the uh i forget who it is but someone talked about how the rents were so cheap you could you could just experiment you could do whatever you want in the music scene and that's kind of almost that's unimaginable these days, right? And it's especially like in Brooklyn. And uh, we've had other, you know, like you said, there were other scenes going on. We had, uh, you know, there's some thriving stuff going on in Brooklyn too in terms of rap and that kind of stuff. But it, it all is very similar. It's very similar sort of socioeconomic uh, things going on at this time, late 90s and, and stuff where, uh, uh, I mean, New York is... Well, we may maybe talk more about this too, because I think that's a, a again what your film's part partly about as well. But where New York was then versus where it was after, um, mm -hmm. after this all hit. Um, and you guys are based in the UK. Um, the thing that struck me: we're a UK-based uh, podcast. Um, 
these very strong links to the UK, um, which are for Dylan. I mean, maybe you can say more about that because I mean, some of them had their, if not all of them, had their first successes or some of their big first big success successes in the UK, and you document that well. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a sort of symbiotic relationship between Britain and that scene in that, as you say, quite rightly, you know, the Strokes got signed in England before America knew about them, really. And all of these bands came to England and played to like, like sold out shows without having released anything or or released, you know, and I I think something that played a huge part in that is that the in Britain at that point, we had a very voracious music press. We had the NME, the Melody right. Maker, you know, lots and lots of, of kind of, you know, well-established music magazines. And they were always looking for a scene to get behind. You know, we had Britpop in the 90s, which right. had sort of gone on its way. And again, it's it sort of perfect timing that the music press was looking for a scene to get behind. And there happened to be all of these things bubbling up in New York and, you know, New York with its musical heritage and and to us as Brits, it has this romance about it. So I think it was just a kind of perfect storm uh, that, you know, cause when you look at it, it wasn't a scene in the way that you might think about a scene. Like they, they weren't all hanging out together. They didn't all like, you know, go to the same places and they're actually making quite different music, you know, the Interpol mm. strokes aesthetically are very, very different. You have the whole kind of art rock thing happening in Brooklyn. Then you have James Murphy sort of fusing dance and punk and they're, they're all kind of different. And I think it was the, the British music press that kind of like, well, went well, we can kind of put this together and present it the, to the world as this New York scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, I guess America is a hard country to break. You know, you can break a a, a city or a region in America, but mm. England, you know, is the size of some American states. And you can, you know, if you break England, then that reverberates back around the world. And I think those bands that were a big deal in New York could suddenly be seen through another, you know, through the prism of the the English music press, which kind of then beams back across the Atlantic. You don't need me to confirm this, but I actually moved to the UK in September of 2001. <laughs> and I hadn't actually even heard of the Strokes, but I land and like the Strokes are everywhere. I mean, you know, that, that is this it cover was everywhere. I mean, back, talk about a different era. You know, you still had music stores, right? You still had Virgin and HMV and all these places. And that's the main, that's the album cover you saw everywhere. And it was the posters were everywhere in the tube and whatnot. And I thought at first they were a British band. Um, but quickly figured out they weren't. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, so yeah, it was very, it's, 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 it was a very interesting uh, link and, and dynamic. And it does seem like a, a, a long ago era. And I, I noticed that one thing that you, you know, is in some of your, the, discussions about the film is it's uh, described as the last great romantic age of rock and roll i think that's even on your website um what what uh address this boat to both of you what made it what made it romantic and what made it great and what made it the last of the great romantic ages see now i think that quote comes from the subtitle of the book i don't is think that, that right that originates with us but okay 
part of what we discussed when we were making this was like, could it ever happen again? You know, given that how much the world has changed in the intervening years, how we consume music, how we, you know, make music, you know, who, who, what, how audiences are made up now, everything's changed so significantly that part of our sort of thesis going into the film was that it probably is the last time it would have, you know, a scene would emerge organically in a geographically specific location and have mm. such an impact. And I think it's romantic because I, I think in a way, it, it, you know, it did tap into everything that had gone before in terms of rock and roll and that, you know, mm. it, it, it sort of, Weirdly, there's a sense, even though it was all about drugs and debauchery and kind of, you know, all that cliche band stuff. It, when you look at it now, it does have an innocence about it because it's before, you know, tech consumed our lives. And it's before, mm. it's when bands still had some mystery. You know, you didn't see what they'd have for breakfast on their Instagram or, or you know, know everything about, about them through Twitter. You know, so I think there's a romance in that kind of mythical aspects of music, the fact that musicians and stars used to be, you know, harder to know than they are now. So that's one aspect. And I also think when you look at the bands in the early days as they are in the film, these are all bands based on friendship and based on kind of, mm. you know, a love of music. And th that's quite romantic as well, you know, of course, they all spiral out of control and fall apart as, as most right. bands do, but there is a sense of, you know, and I think the third reason is New York itself. You know, there's an incredible, it's almost like a beacon to creative people or artists because of everything that's gone on there from, you know, Warhol and the factory right. jazz era to everything. There's a, there's a romance about the city. And I think we were quite keen to sort of look at that, but also show the reality of it as well. Mm. Will, did you want to add anything? No, I think I think uh, Dylan said it better than I would. You know, <laughs> I, I think I think one thing he said there, which I agree with, is they all of these bands. It feels like at that at the at the beginning of their careers when we when we join them, it feels like they just want to make music. They're not. They haven't really got a plan about conquering the world and being huge bands they just want to make the thing that they want to make and i think that there's something romantic in that and it, and yeah, obviously they've become incredibly popular but i don't think i think know, in most cases they haven't thought about it at all and the ramifications yeah. of, of the success that they have you know comes as a shock to a lot of them but i also think it, it's one of the things that fascinated us about it as a story was that this is all happening in the months before the entire world is going to be looking at New York for a very different reason. And that, that something sort of, you know, fascinating that this is happening for all of these people uh, at probably one of the tumult most tumultuous times in, in the city and America's history. Yeah. I think that's actually gives us a good point to give our listeners and viewers an early break. We'll be right back with uh, Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern, the filmmakers behind Meet Me in the Bathroom. It's on uh, Apple TV and Amazon Prime. Do, do check it out. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. 
check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern, the filmmakers behind Meet Me in the Bathroom. You can find it on Apple TV and Amazon Prime. Uh, we were just talking about um, this romantic era of uh, music as well as a romantic era for New York. Uh, you used a word that I wasn't sure we could use in terms of describing it, but it does seem appropriate at, at almost an innocent age. As you, uh, you know, it's, it seems a bit odd given the everything that you document on there, but it does feel that way. Um, and so, yes, there are these amazing. I mean, this is all ongoing, um, and then nine eleven happens, and I mean, you don't necessarily, you know. It's, it's not the kind of doc where you just, it's not a bunch of talking heads talking about, well, this is what I felt like when, you know, the planes hit the, you know, the, the towers. But, I mean, what is, how, did this influence them at all, any of these bands? Uh, or, or, you know, in terms of how they are, or are they just kind of juxtaposed against what was also happening? Um, obviously, and you do, and you show that in terms of what was obviously happening in the world and New York specifically and what New York went through in those last those first few years after nine eleven. Um, but it's it's in that sense. Uh, besides a music scene, you are documenting the life of a city, aren't you? And the evolution of a city. Um, Will, what is that? Uh, no, I think, I think that's that's. That's exactly what we were doing. I mean, I do think it, it it impacted them all in different ways. You know, in the film, Karen O talks talks a lot about how it impacted her. Um, we we have the Kimmy Dawson track, Anthrax, which right. you know happened just sort of after the nine eleven. That's right. Film. Um, you know, and and then lots of the artists talk about that kind of shift from manhattan to brooklyn occurring at the same time as well so i think in in individual ways they're all you know deeply affected by by it as was everyone in the city and and we we wanted to to sort of allow them to say that in their own words really yeah yeah i think one of the things that was really fascinating is obviously in the decades since it happened we've seen kind of 9-11 from every kind of angle possible and the when when we read the the book in the first place it was really interesting yeah. to see it from the perspective of a creative community um you know and ha- yeah. the impact it had you know but as will mentioned karen o from yeah yeah yeah's said that kind of one of the only ways she could deal with the, the sort of anxiety she felt at the time was the release of performing on stage you know and then some of them you know, the anthrax, the the song that Kimya sings is actually a kind of a reaction to 9-11. There's a lot of an attitude of like people being like, shit, if this can happen in our city, let's just double down and carry on doing the thing that we we loved doing, you know. And I, right. think, I think to your other point that it, this is a document of a city over time. So we knew going in, you know, slap bang in the middle of this story, 9-11 happens and we can't make a film about New York in this time without kind of dealing with it. So we knew we had to deal with it in a way by showing how it intersected with our story. And Mm. one of the most amazing pieces of archive we found was Paul from Interpol on the day of 9-11, who 
you know, his friend had filmed them walking the streets as there's still kind of paper from the offices falling and they're, they're picking up leaflets about giving blood and you get just, you know, for it to intersect directly with one of the characters in, in the film, it, it gave us license to kind of like go there. We didn't just want it to be, and then 9-11 happens. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. I mean, and in, in terms of this sort of tribute to another time and in, in Lost Youth, you just mentioned this, um, um, this incredible archival footage that you've you've got in this film i mean um uh, to me it feels like you were there uh i mean it feels like this documentary i mean in fact i know you have the thing at the beginning where uh, uh oh i forget which band it is but someone said do you guys want to be in a documentary you know kind of thing uh but i mean it's amazing where how'd you find this all where'd you you know i mean it's it's incredible i do feel like it's you guys were there in 20 2001 or 99 onwards and just filming the whole thing i mean it, it would have been easier if we were there ourselves but um <laughs> uh yeah i mean we we sort of when we first read the book and decided to make it into a documentary we we kind of wrote the film and knew of bits of key bits of archive knew the music videos knew the sort of obvious stuff but, all right but we yeah. didn't we assumed and hoped that there would be lots of other archive out there uh, and then that became sort of two years of our lives really to yeah. searching out this stuff and and doing it in in a quite a diy way really because you can't just go on to you know an image library and find this stuff it's like often people like us in their homes who've filmed a gig or you know had you know was a photographer who who took a load of photographs or or a journalist mm -hmm. who did an interview and still had a kind of mini disc recording of that interview so it was a really it I mean, was proper, proper detective work at points because it, it was finding people you know pulling up old message boards from the period and finding people and then trying to wow. figure out where they were yeah. where they were at this point and someone would say oh i remember there was a guy with a camera who was always filming gigs so it was it was a, a process of like being of sleuthing really being detectives and and figuring out where all this stuff was um and it, and, and that takes time and you have moments where you think oh we're not going to get anything that covers this period how are we going to do that and then something amazing will come in at the last minute um but yeah, we always said we're gonna we want to build this entirely from material that comes from the time, so it doesn't just end up being a sort of typical, right. you know, behind the music kind of, yeah, of exactly. documentary. Where it's yeah. well, Nick, great back then. We wanted it to sort of feel like yeah. you were there and immerse people in that in that moment in time. I mean, one one thing that sort of made it difficult, but it, in the end worked in our favour was that when this was happening, there were there was no YouTube didn't exist. There wasn't really a place to mm. upload videos. So whilst that stuff was really hard to search out, it it was also stuff that no one had ever seen before. You know, quite often it was, you'd find, you'd get in touch with someone and they had never looked back at the tapes that they'd shot. Wow. Um, there was a, a photographer called Nancy Saroof who had shot tons of stuff with lots of these bands and had, and, and, and had a, a kind of suitcase full of tapes and and Amazing. rolls of films and so on that she'd never never looked at since it was shot and there was there was a few instances like that where you'd get a kind of 
gold mine of stuff which was amazing and then and other times the bands themselves would mm. try and point us in the right direction like james murphy said of their first show in london you know someone was definitely filming there was a guy there right up front of the camera so so we knew it existed but didn't necessarily know how where to find it and how did you find that guy that's a good question <laughs> it was one of the ones we should remember because it was right near the end of, of the editing yeah. edit yeah. but yeah that was it, it was you know again someone mentioning a name and yeah. to that person who mentioned you know it was a lot of that and and it, i mean it was fun uh, it also you, took place just as lockdown happened we started the I, edit i was going to say i was going to ask yeah. yeah it was kind of it was a disaster at first because we were going to go to new york and we were going to kind of like do a lot of this sort of hunting in new york but then it proved to be sort of beneficial because everyone was stuck at home everyone had time to mm. to go up into their attics or to look in their their kind of you know look through their old stuff and i think also think that lo first lockdown made everyone slightly nostalgic as well and like people were very very open to to kind of helping us and i think we got a lot more archive than we would have if people hadn't been you know locked in into their homes and yeah. you know if they've been doing their nine to fives or they've been out on tour or whatever we probably wouldn't have ended up with as much great archive as we did yeah. and and as you know as you say people being more open i mean is that also when you're doing these uh audio interviews uh is that about that same time because and and uh I mean, it's interspersed and voiced over throughout the f the film, but uh, it seems like you pretty much got everyone was seemed pretty keen. Were there everyone keen to cooperate? Because it seems like you've got just about everyone coming. You know? Yeah, I mean the the majority of the of what you hear of the 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 audio interviews are, are kind of actually built from recordings we found from you know the same period the film takes place. So we 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 went on we did a process of finding every interview that anyone had ever done you know right. radio television whatever and then we also decided to contact all the print journalists who had interviewed people and asked them if they still had their recordings on minidisc or whatever format that was we're doing a lot of work with minidisc which uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so and, and that was a kind of conscious decision that we wanted yeah. to to have them speaking in the main at that time rather than now looking back right, and right. so we did we did do interviews but they were they were kind of follow-up interviews where we were right. you know where we'd already kind of you but know. Yeah, every, everyone was really really great with giving their time and giving us their archive and the audio interviews that we did in the later stages of the edit were really really useful because you know no matter how good all the archive you find is you you right. still need little bits to kind of give you context or to, yeah. to sort of act as segues from one bit to the other or to clarify something that that perhaps isn't as clear as it could be so you know everyone was really really great and really supportive of the project wow i mean did you did you guys sleep <laughs> i think it sounds like to me you were well, i mean the, that's you know the editors, you go ahead. The editors didn't sleep as much as they should have done for sure. Uh, and and uh, we, we had two editors, Andrew and Sam, who are, you know, full credit to them because they, they, they kind of worked around the clock as well. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a long, uh, it's a long, pro <laughs> long project, a lot of late nights, definitely. 
And it was a very, a very different way of working because we've made, you know, music documentaries before. We made one about right. Blur, uh, which was, you know, did have Talking Heads interviews and it yeah. had a live element in that. It was the band's reunion tour, but then it also had archive to tell the band's history. But right. it was perhaps more traditional documentary. And then the next one we made, uh, Sharp and Play the Hits, was more of a concert film with documentary elements. So this was the first time we'd worked entirely in archive and, you know, mm. it's such a different process. You know, we, right. we, we had an idea of the story we wanted to tell. We wrote it. We did a kind of writer's room at the beginning and we had our kind of vision of the film we wanted to make. And then you have to set out trying to find the stuff that you need to make it. And, yeah. you know, sometimes that stuff is hard to find. Sometimes you don't find it at all. Sometimes you find something that sends you in a slightly different direction and, you know, everyone on it sort of it has to be prepared to adapt and to kind of like, right. you know, build this thing in good faith, hoping at the end of the, the edit that we'll, we'll have it. Mm. What does Lizzie think of this, of the film? Lizzie oh, well, I, hope, I hope she likes it. She, she, <laughs> I, think, I think she does. Yeah. She, she was, she was, you know, a big part of the whole right. process was very helpful yeah. you know with both getting us kind of going introducing us to people mm. watching edits and all that stuff so yeah she lizzie was was, was great really yeah. yeah and she was with it when when we did the premieres in america and stuff she's like she was there at every everyone doing the q a's with us so i think she's she really enjoyed the process of making it and i think mm. you know she'd lived with it for so long i think it took her like six years to write a book or something so she was just sort of excited to see the story in someone else's hands and see how right, you, right. you know and, and we didn't want to just remake the book in in exactly. sort of documentary form like our whole thing was like the book as an oral history hmm. does what books do best you know it has exactly. that amazing quality of a a, a a sort of dialogue going on between lots of people and hmm. you know that Rashomon quality that Right. You, you know everyone's got their side of the story and the truth is somewhere in the middle and like the book does that wonderfully what we knew we could do as filmmakers is something that the book can't do you know it can do it in people's imaginations but we could actually sort of viscerally bring to life the time and you know a sense of the culture a sense of the differences between then and now just through building this kind of collage of of that period and you guys, uh, I note that you, uh, if you've already mentioned, you do a lot of collaborations together. Um, I mean, uh, what's the key to success? Uh, you know, maybe I'm going to open up a can of worms here, but what is the key to success as collaborators? I mean, is it, I mean, one, one thing that the film shows is, you know, all these uh, creative differences and things that bands have and the conflicts and stuff. I mean, what is, uh, but often it, that there's something about that tension that leads to uh, creative success. What is it like uh, for you guys collaborating on these projects? Uh, yeah, we Will. Hate yeah, you hate each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just get got to get through it. Uh. <laughs> I mean, or is or maybe the other way I should put it is, uh, and I feel like you know, getting ready for this uh, this this uh, chat we're having, I. I kept worrying that I was, uh, you've got some great scenes in there where you've got really, I mean, at least I found them annoying uh, 
music journos asking questions, just really stupid questions. So I've just kept thinking, don't ask the really stupid question. Don't, you know, don't be like one of those guys that you have on there. But uh, um, what is, you guys are going to keep collaborating? What's next for you guys in terms of uh, projects? Yeah, I mean, we're we're sort of searching for a, a, a new, I mean, we've done several music documentaries and, you know, our hope is that the next documentary we make will not be a music one not because we don't like music documentaries it's just because you know we've told stories of that genre and in that world before and i think it'd be nice to kind of open out to something new so we've been discussing a few ideas but nothing's kind of like concrete yet and 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 as much as uh it was great fun making an archive only documentary <laughs> 20 years ago i'm not sure we might, we might wait another 20 years <laughs> exactly, <yeah. laughs> well although we'll have we won't have any problems getting archive in 20 years time for for bands today it would be the opposite problem <laughs> well i mean and not to and i will be but not to sound like the old man in the room but that's the thing that i you know a lot of people say and you you were saying this uh or lizzie maybe said it first but uh, about this romantic age and what the band's bands just wanted to make music i mean the thing i've heard is that there's a lot of people who i mean there's a lot of great artists out there don't get me wrong and a lot of these most of these bands i think are still performing but uh there are a lot of people who are trying to it's all about they're thinking first in terms of getting famous and less about music or so it is about getting on instagram or tiktok i mean so much has changed like you know 20 years ago the notion of like a sort of respected artist doing a, a sponsorship deal with a brand or, or you right. know, it, it, it could never have happened. It would have been, you know, sacrilege or it would have been like that, you know, it would have dented that person's reputation. But now if you don't have a, a, a kind of like brand sponsorship or a hookup with some kind of corporate entity, then you're not, you know, I guess because there are so, you know, the revenue streams from live and from mm. releasing records is so is so kind of low now. But yeah, no, it is. It's a completely different world. It's 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 yeah. The these these guys in our documentary were making flyers and photocopying them. Now you can, you know, and probably a hundred people might pick them up and see them. Now you just stick it on social media and you know building an audience is a very, very different thing now and getting people's attention is a very different thing and has to be sort of constant uh, to the point where, as I was saying earlier, like the, the, there's no mystery to musicians anymore. There's no kind of sense of, of them occupying a different space, which is good in some ways, but bad in other ways because you, you do want a, you know, you do want a Bowie or a, or yeah. a Bob Dylan you know you don't, don't necessarily need to know and i guess for some of us who uh who aren't musicians but love to go to see bands and live music and everything it's almost kind of a lost innocence for us as well because there was that uh us of a certain age of uh, that joy of going to some uh club in a really bad neighborhood and you and one of maybe four or five other people watching this band you're thinking oh they're going to be the next great thing and uh, you know and then they didn't end up being the next great thing, but uh, you know there was something about that that is. Uh, I mean, does that happen anymore, really? Well, I think that's what was so exciting about this is that this film is that it, it 
felt to us a little bit like the last sort of time that if you wanted to to be in, you know to go and watch those bands or discover that music in its infancy you had to be in the city or had to be in in and around the city whereas now i don't think that makes any difference you can you can find out about listen to watch any artist from anywhere in the world i, I mean i'm sure there are loads of really interesting scenes happening that we we're not aware of yeah. but um, I'm sure there's a version of that going on somewhere, you know, for, for, for yeah, but I'd say sort of the, 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 across the board, like people discover bands via algorithms now and, mm. you know, whether that's as exciting as walking into a, you know, sweaty club and mm. feeling like something's happening, you know, and getting that energy off everybody else in the room. Um, which I'm sure still goes on, but I don't know. We're we're uh, we're, we're old now, so <laughs> probably don't know where. <laughs> and what I will say is, I think uh, on on many levels, but your film certainly captures that. That I will say. I mean, it it brought took me back that energy of going into these in, into clubs and seeing bands like this perform. Uh, so. Um, Again, and to fans or not, or fans or people who are not even fans of the, the that scene or these bands, it's definitely well well worth a watch. So, so thanks again, really, uh, very much appreciated. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Great to finally get you guys on. And just to remind our uh, listeners and viewers, we've been talking with Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern, the filmmakers behind "Meet Me in the Bathroom." You can find it on Apple TV and Amazon Prime, guys. That's a that's a wrap. If it's okay with you, uh, thanks again. Really enjoyed it, um, and no, enjoyed the, so really enjoyed the film. Um, and uh, yeah, look forward to if we haven't scared you away. If you, it may not be a music doc next time, but uh, you, yeah, definitely look forward to the next project. And love to have you on again sometime. Brilliant. Thank you so much. All that's right. It. Take care. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in York, England. A big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.